Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? That's a haunting question. morning I give you permission to refer to yourself as a wretched Christian. I do not give anybody permission to call somebody else a wretched Christian, okay? It's a very personal thing. It's very private. Um, but Paul comes up and says, wretched man that I am. It's kind of an odd thing to hear Paul say. This, this is Paul, by the way, who met Jesus on the road to Damascus. Now, if you read the text, he did not have a vision of Jesus. He didn't have a sense of the nearness of Jesus. He saw Jesus. He met Jesus face to face on the road to Damascus, and that launched him out as a Christian believer. Later on, he intimates to the uh, Corinthian Christians that he had had an experience of rising up to the seventh heaven. I don't know what that means. But I know it's a lot better than the third heaven. And, uh, you know, and, and he's just like skyrocketing in these spiritual experiences of the majesty and the glory of God, traveling the world, seeing the working of the Holy Spirit, just watching people come, uh, come and come again and again and again to faith in Jesus Christ. And with all that glorious stuff going on in his life, Paul says, wretched man that I am. Kind of encouraging a little bit that we've got company because that's where we are, a lot of us. The wretchedness of the Christian life. Uh, you know, we don't like that word wretched. Uh, it's, it's kind of a, a downer word. We like the happy words. I mean, the, the, the sweep of American Christianity today is the gospel is all about making you feel better about yourself. Life is better with Jesus, and, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll just be happier and, and more fulfilled while you'll have blessings if you believe in Jesus. Look, folks, if you believe in Jesus, you will have blessings, you will be happier, and your life will be fulfilled, but you're also going to have heartache. And you're also going to have times of stumbling. And there are going to be moments when you're trying your dead level best to do the right thing, and yet you keep doing the wrong thing. And times when you try not to do the wrong thing, and you do it anyway. It's just going to happen. And you're going to come to the point and say, why did I do that? This is nuts. Why did I do this at all? We sing the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Well, you know, some people don't like that. Because Amazing Grace is sort of like the American hymn. This is what we sing whenever we get together, but we don't really believe anything. We get a guy with the bagpipes to, to, to play it up on a hill uh, somewhere, and then we all sing Amazing Grace. Let's the sound that's, well, let's not sing that line. I once was lost, but you know, that, that kind of thing. We don't like to sing A Wretch Like Me. In fact, it's been changed. You know that? No, that, that saved such a one like me or saved and set me free or anything but wretch. And we've taken it out of the hymnal. But folks, we ought not to leave the word wretch out of amazing grace. 
John Newton knew what he was talking about. John Newton, back in the uh, 18th century, he was a seafaring man, and he got involved in the slave trade, trafficking in human beings. And one time on that boat, while he was, was uh, taking humans to be sold off as slaves, he encountered a storm, and in the midst of that storm, he cried out for the mercy of God, and it dawned on him that God was trying to keep his attention. Years later, he finally fulfilled a dream, and he became a minister of the gospel, and then he wrote all this amazing grace, and it saved a misguided person. It saved someone who just didn't think straight. It saved a wretch like me. John Newton knew what it was to be a wretch. And he knew what it was to be saved from his wretchedness. You know, this has been going on for a long time. Uh, you know, we, we, we sing the, the hymn, Alas, and did my Savior bleed? Did my sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for... Now, I grew up singing sinners such as I. But when Isaac Watt wrote that hymn, about the same time as John Newton, his line was that saved such a worm as I. Oh, no, we can't have worms in church. <laughs> I don't know. My mind is going places right now. <laughs> but Isaac Watt knew what he was writing because Isaac Watt knew something about the majesty of God. He knew something about the exalted holiness of our Father in heaven. Isaac Watt knew something about how supremely glorious God is. And as I approach God's glorious throne, the most adequate word to describe me just might be worm. And you know, that's okay because God saves worms like me. See, but we back away from that. You know, like we, we don't like to think that, well, you know, let's not talk about Christians as being wretched because, after all, that, that leads to a poor self-image. Uh, makes you feel bad about yourself. Now, folks, I believe in positive self-images. Those of you who have children in your home, one of your primary responsibilities is to give that child such a healthy self-image, positive and true, realistic, but a healthy self-image, so they will not need to have somebody else tell them they're okay. They will not have to marry the first jerk who comes along just because they feel bad about herself. They won't have to go along with the peer group to feel accepted. They won't have to look to the world to define who they are. You give that child a positive self-image. But folks, let's be realistic. We sin. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and we deceive ourselves. So, you know, there's, there's a couple of folks who want to say, well, let's not talk about the wretchedness of being a Christian because being a Christian is all about not sinning. Hallelujah, that's it. But folks, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. And it's going to happen in the way that Paul describes here. He starts out, doesn't he? You, you, you look at it. I won't read it to you again, but, but he says, look, I, I look at my life, and in my mind, I love the law of God. In my mind, I want to do the right thing. In my mind, I, I'm just so focused in on the will of God in my life. That's where my mind is. But folks, having your mind there isn't quite the same as being there. Not quite. You know, I have a love for the game of golf. Well, pretend that I have a love for a game of golf for a while. I played golf for about one summer, and then I gave it up because I have too much respect for the game. But, you know, just loving golf... 
Loving golf is not the same as being able to play golf. I can guarantee you that's the case. Just liking golf will not straighten out your drive. There's something else that happens, has to happen, and that is the flesh has to get involved. You have to have the flesh doing what the golf rules and game says you have to do. And folks, that's what doesn't happen. Paul says, in my mind, I love the law of God, but in the flesh, I see that there's an indwelling sin, that there's still this inclination to violate and rebel against who God is and what God has designed for my life. He says, that happens because I'm still connected to this physical stuff called flesh. Some of us are more connected than others, but Paul says, I'm still connected to the flesh. And that leads to the sin. And, and, and the reason for that is that the flesh, just, just the, the flesh and the bone, the physical stuff that we are, harbors the habits of a lifetime. You know, when you come into the world, you're born, come into the world, the first thing that happens is the world starts programming your brain. You start learning things. You start learning, you know, what is the universe like? Can I trust people? Uh, you know, what do I do when it hurts? And by the way, that's why people yell when they're upset. They learned that in the crib. I mean, think about it. You're a little baby and you scream at the top of your lungs. What happens? The whole world stops and everybody tries to make you happy. You learned that as a baby. And when you're yelling and screaming next time, remember that. It's a habit of a lifetime. It's just programmed into the brain. It's, it's a part of the biochemistry and the neurology of, of how you think and how you respond to things. And that is still there. By the way, most of that's loaded in before you ever have a conscious memory before you ever have a, 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 an intentional thought that's loaded in. And when you come to Jesus, praise God, sometimes what he does is he takes that learned behavior and he just shatters it, gets rid of it, puts it back together, and you're a whole person again. But more often than not, what happens is there's a residue of the habits of a lifetime. You learn some things as a child that not as a child in your family that are not appropriate for a child in the kingdom of God. You learn some things about selfishness, some things about bitterness. You learn some things about getting even. You learn some things about, about not letting others take advantage of you. you. You learn some things and they're still rolling around in your head because you still have the flesh operating in your life. You're still going to have these habits coming out. A lot of times when we come to Christ, these habits, and we know they're killing us, it's easy to think about what they are. You, know, you might think of the paradigm of addictions, but we have these, these habits, and sometimes we come to Christ, and what he does is he takes that habit away. But I've seen over and over again how that habit is taken away long enough for us to go, grow strong in the faith, and then we start to deal with the underlying issues. Then we have to start dealing with, you know, bitternesses that, you know, deeply buried and not quite forgotten. Because we're, we're tied to the flesh and we have the habits of a lifetime. We also have the pain of the moment in the flesh. Physical pain can lead to crankiness. You know, if you're tired and exhausted, you can get cranky real quick. You know, pain and exhaustion and fatigue are part of the physical life, the physical body. And those things you know, sort of induce a sinful response to situations. You know, one of the things that's supposed to happen when um, you're, you're faced with a choice is that you're supposed to see it the way God sees it. That is, you're, you're supposed to have an eternal perspective. 
You look at this decision and you say, now how does this glorify God for all eternity? What are the ramifications of my decisions? Not just here in the moment, not just next year, but for all eternity. How does that work out? But in the flesh, we have a hard time doing that. First, we just don't have that much imagination. But the other side of it is, when you're in pain, your time frame of reference gets smaller and smaller and smaller. That's why when you need surgery, the first time the doctor says, well, you know, that back will never get better. It's going to hurt for the rest of your life. You need surgery. You say, no, I think I'll put that off. Why? Because it hurts, but not that much. And then you go through life a little bit more and starts hurting more. And you start realizing, you know, that surgery thing, just the moment. And after a while, you're in so much pain, you don't care what they do to you. And that's what pain does to us with sin. We start... We get to the point where we just don't care what happens because we're in the flesh. And the pain makes us narrow our scope so all we see is the moment. And we respond out of self rather than out of love for God. We're in the flesh, and, and as a result of that, we, uh, we also have the fatigue and the tiredness. Um, I mean, does anybody else have the experience where when you're just plain tired, it's harder to do the right thing? Am I the only one that's happened to? Does that happen to you a lot? By the way, those of you who have teenagers in the home, they need their sleep. You need about 10 hours of sleep a day. You know, when you have a teenager who wants to sleep till noon, let them. <laughs> right? You need that. You got to have it. Teenagers, don't, teenagers should not get up until like 10 o'clock in the morning. There are scientific studies that prove that. So what do we do? We get them up at 6 o'clock in the morning, stuff them on a bus, and expect them to learn something at school. Meanwhile, little children, you know, who like to get up early in the morning, we make them sleep till 9. They're not in school until 9.30, and they're, they're already half done with their day. This is nuts. We ought to send our little children to school at 5 o'clock in the morning, and teenagers shouldn't show up until 12 noon. Randy, I just made a lot of friends. <laughs> Look, this is, I'm not spouting, this is scientific fact. <laughs> but here's the thing. But when you get tired and you just haven't had enough sleep, it's hard to resist. It's hard to resist spiritually. It's hard, it's hard to, to, to get in gear with the Holy Spirit. It's just hard because you're of the flesh. And that's what happens. See, we're of the flesh, and that means that we're, we're in a world that's, that's just pulling us away from God. Um, you know, if, if you're blessed, you will have friends who love Jesus and you'll have a family that loves Jesus and maybe you even go to work and everybody loves Jesus the way I, my workplace is. But by and large, this, this world around us, this culture around us, the society around us, the push of human history and society is all away from God. And in the flesh, we desire to be accepted so much and we desire to be, be uh, accounted as somebody who's worthwhile by the world so much that we'll do all kinds of nutty things just to be approved. And we'll go along with the world because we are still in the flesh. And so Paul says, in my mind, I love the law of God. In my flesh, I find it really, really hard to do. He wasn't the first. He wasn't the first one. Uh, you, you read about King David. King David was someone who um, uh, was a man after God's own heart. You remember that? Uh, God said, David, 
you're on track so well that I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to send the Messiah and he's going to be called son of David. David, your, your throne is going to last for eternity because it's going to be the throne that my son, the Messiah, sits on. That's how much God thought of David. But all it took was one moment of peeking over the, 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 the garden wall and looking at Bathsheba, and before he knew it, David had fallen into sin. To the point that he cried out, he said, God, oh God, against you, you only have I sinned. My sin is always in front of me. And it was devastating to him. Isaiah was a prophet of God. Um, and he was in the temple one day and he was uh, worshiping God. He was where he ought to be, doing what he ought to be doing, worshiping God. And God granted him a vision of the glory of the throne room of heaven. Uh, Isaiah just saw the little bit of it and smoke filled the, the, the temple. You remember this? All is a sign of the glory of God. He saw the, just the bottom edge of the garment of God. He saw the glory of God, the marvelous glory of God. And at that moment, this holy man, this, this prophet, this righteous man, seeing the glory of God, cried out, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I'm a guy who talks for a living and my speech is polluted. I'm a prophet who speaks for God and what I say is not worthy of him. Worthy of him. Woe is me. My lips are unclean. Everybody around me, their lips are unclean. You see, the closer you come to the glory of God, the more you become aware of how wretched we are. So it's not unusual for that to happen. So Paul says, the good that I would, I do not, and that which I would not, that very thing I do. I learned it in King James. Uh, it was uh, sort of in, uh, uh, in the early years of college where I was really starting to realize the personal aspect of the Christian faith, having grown up in a Christian home. And I remember reading through Romans, and I came to Romans chapter 7, and I found that verse, and it said, you know, the, the good that I would, I do not. And the evil I would not, that very thing I do. And I can remember thinking to myself, that's me. He's describing me. There are so many times when I'm trying to do what I know I should do, and I'm just blowing it time after time after time. And then he got to that verse where he says, wretched man that I am. That's me. I'm there. That's what's happening in my life. That's where I am. There's a wretchedness in the life of the Christian. When you realize not only your sin, but you realize how incredibly hard it is and how often we fail. Wretched man that I am. Well, some people have an answer for that. Their answer is, why don't you try harder? No. You're sinning? Quit. Just stop it. Don't do it anymore. No. I've got a helpful hint for you. Just live stream my, my videos. You know, sign up. Credit cards accepted. You know, and I will tell you how to, how to try. Just try harder. Work harder. If you just try harder, you can do better. Folks, it won't work. It might work once, but it won't work for your life. Sort of like when I told you about playing golf. I should, I, someday I'll tell you why I quit playing golf. But I, when, when, when I did play, I mean, I had a tremendous drive. It went straight out for 50 yards. And it did not take one of these graceful curves to the right. It turned right 
I'm telling you, I was a trick shot, shot artist. I knew how to not just slice a ball, I knew how to boom, boom in midair. That's what I could do. And I tried to figure out, how can I solve this problem? How can I solve the problem? And I started reading all the books and the magazines, and each one told me how to solve my problem. I mean, they, they, this was incredible. It said, when you line up to tee the, for the ball, first move your foot and, and put the toe in, and then lower the left shoulder and raise the right shoulder. Then turn your head this way and look on the left side of your eye. Keep your elbow straight and turn the hand this way. Some guy next to the tee box said, look at that horribly deformed man. <laughs> the other guy said, yeah, but what a beauty of a drive. <laughs> okay, but, um, but here, here's the thing. I would, I, would, I would do these hints, you know, and I'd get up and I'd hit the ball, and wow, it would go straight. 70 yards straight. <laughs> That's the other reason I gave up. But you know, it would go straight once. You guys who play golf, you know what I'm talking about. And I figure, I've got this licked. I've got it fixed. I can hit the ball this way every time. And the next time, 50 out, hard right. <laughs> and that was it. Because the problem wasn't just knowing something and trying harder. For me to straighten my golf shot, would, <laughs> it would take a miracle of God is what it would take. But, but, you know, wretched man that I am, and some are saying, let me give you a hint and just try harder, and it just leads to more frustration. It just leads to you thinking to yourself, man, I'm the only guy who doesn't get it. And then there's some other people who say, well, just don't worry about it. Just don't worry about it. After all, you're saved by grace. God saves you by grace. Oh, the wonderful thing is God saves us by grace, but we don't want to sin against such a gracious, loving God. So Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And then he gives the answer. You know what it is. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The blood that cleansed us at the cross and brought us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son is the same blood that cleanses us from all unrighteousness when we confess our sin to him. This Jesus who died for our sins that we might be born again is the Jesus who was raised from the dead that we might walk in units of life. We are wretched in ourselves and in our flesh. But in Jesus Christ, we are born again, children of God, spotless and blameless before him. Thanks be to God. So you see, when, when we talk about the wretchedness of the Christian, I'm not trying to convince you to be wretched. I think in your mind and in your heart, you know you already are. What I want to convince you is keep going to the next verse. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, and so this week, I'm, you know, try to be wretched. No. When it happens, start listening to what the Holy Spirit is doing. You know, the Holy Spirit in, in inspired John to say that if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. God our Father is faithful and just 
to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we are calling God a liar. Now, folks, I am writing this, John says, so that you may not sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's our Jesus. So don't take wretch out of amazing grace because that's why it's amazing. That grace saved a wretch like me. And that grace is working today in the life of the believer. So when we hit that spot, and you will, where you stumble, where you fall, where you've sinned, the grace abounding, the grace abounding through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Let's bow for prayer. Father, thank you, thank you. Thank you for making it all about you and all about your grace and all about your mercy toward us. Thank you, Father, that every step along the way, every part of our journey is governed by your constant undying love for your children. And so, Father, I pray for the outpouring of your Holy Spirit. Give to us the courage to return to you time and time again and that even in the wretchedness of our failures, we would see all the more clearly the glory of your grace. And I ask this all in Jesus' name, for his sake, for your glory. Amen.